science nerds, welcome back to another episode of MRSA Podcast, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University to try to bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the new generation of science leaders it's fostering. I'll be your host, Bonnie, and I'm joined today with my co-host, Denny. Welcome to MRSA Podcasts. We're joined today by Dr. Cécile Fradin, a physics professor and the principal investigator at the Molecular Biophysics Group at McMaster. Dr. Fraden's research is targeted towards the cellular dynamics of single molecules, specifically focusing on the diffusion of macromolecules in a crowded media, nuclear transport, conformational molecular changes, and the interactions of single molecules at the cell membrane. Dr. Fraden joins the interests of physicists and biologists alike throughout her fields of research, and we're very happy to have her join us on this podcast episode. So good evening, Dr. Fraden. How are you doing today? Good evening. I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for having me uh, over on your podcast. Of course. Um, Dr. Fredin, we saw that you've studied all around the world, developing your academic career in France, Israel, and now here in Canada. Would you be able to tell our audience about your worldly academic path and how you ended up here at McMaster? Yes, um, for sure. I actually... Traveling is one of the things that has attracted me to science, the fact that it's such an international enterprise. And um, so I was always hoping when I chose this career path that it would take me places and, and I wasn't disappointed. Um, I, um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm French uh, uh, originally, so I, I grew up in France and I, I did my, um, I guess I've always been interested in science, but I've also was interested in other things like I, I kind of hesitated after high school whether to go uh, into an artistic career if you believe it <laughs> or a scientific career and then I and I asked um, I asked advice so my parents of course preferred I would do a scientific career and I, and I also asked my um, art teacher and she also said I should do a scientific career so <laughs> I, I um, anyway so that's that I studied I went to study uh, a science and um I think I, I always enjoyed uh, physics and chemistry. And I, maybe one thing that's interesting is I don't think I was always necessarily very good at it in high school. For example. I mean, I, I wasn't horrible at it, but um, it didn't come easy to me, let's say. And I, I, just, I just was fascinated by it. And in particular, I remember reading a textbook uh, in my last year of high school about light and the nature of light and it's it just I just loved it and I, I I worked really hard and and um and so and that's you know that's that's where I I went um and so I studied in France so the, the system in France is different from you a little bit it's a bit like in Quebec where you have um you have a, a kind of preparatory years before you actually go to your to your BSc or the equivalent of a BSc but anyway so I I I studied uh, in Paris in a place called the Ecole Normale, which is a, a really uh, a really great place. Which is uh, it's not quite a university. It's um, it's a place that is that is um, that is that is trying to to form people to become teacher and researcher. So it was already very um, very like very directed toward research and and teaching if if, if you were so inclined. But I, I wasn't. And so uh, we were always in contact with researchers there, and it was also a great in the sense that it was very like you would you would enter in a certain um, you know I entered in a, in a chemist as a chemistry student for example, but you were able to 
uh, study anything you wanted, including literature, if you wanted. Like you could take courses, any courses you want. Um, so I anyway, so I, I went through there and, and got my BSc there in, in physics and chemistry. And I think um, as part of this, um, as part of this, I was actually uh, encouraged to uh, do some research, uh, some undergraduate research and, and to go abroad for this research. And I had the incredible uh, chance to um, go to the US uh, at a place called Bell Laboratories, which is a very famous place or was. Um, it was a fam very famous research lab for physics uh, in particular. And they had, um, uh, when I went, a, a great research program that had to do with liquid crystals and how you could use them for making uh, screens and things like this. And um, I, I worked there with uh, uh, a woman, so I chose to, to have a woman as a supervisor called, called uh, Pat Gladys. And she uh, she was fantastic. She she basically she she she, she opened her lab and said, "Here are the instruments. You can do whatever you want." <laughs> and she was always traveling, but she was so supportive and so encouraging. And, um, and 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 playing with those liquid crystals was so much fun. And so it was a little bit by chance that I you know I didn't really choose the topic. I just wanted to travel, and I wanted to to have a woman as a supervisor. And uh, but I, I fell in love with what's called soft materials, so uh, materials like polymers and, and liquid crystals and, and um, 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 colloids that uh, that are in fact very close to biological systems. So, but that was my first step towards this type of. Anyways, so when. Um, uh, then later, when the time came to choose for graduate school, um, again, I hesitated because some part of me was drawn to very fundamental particle physics, but some part of me really, like I remember this experience being in the lab and being able to, to, uh, to, to design my own experiments. And, and, and so I chose to do a PhD that, that was experimental. And um, for my PhD, I... I, I I, I, so the, the goal initially was to study um, monolayer of um, of fatty acid on at the surface of water. So if you want, like half a half a half a bi, half a lipid bilayer, um, and see how it changes the property of the surface of water. And we were using uh, X-ray diffraction for this, and it it was really interesting. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, we we ended up actually uh, removing the the bilayer to do a control with just the surface of water and just studying the surface of water was already so fascinating because you always think of the surface as you know something that's water or air but of course there is this little um there's this this zone of confusion uh, where it's a little bit of like neither water nor air and the, the surface of the water has little waves like the surface of the sea and so we could see all of this or guess all of this from the diffraction and, and that so that was that was great but I think as as I was doing my PhD I mean, so that was still in France um because of we, we, we were, I was in this community of soft matter slash biophysics I, I got to hear a lot of talks about biophysics and and what I what really um, you know what what kind of convinced me I, I wanted to go into biophysics rather than staying in pure physics is is was this call I had for trying to understand things at a very fundamental level and you know the same way that 
particle physics or the nature of light was attractive because it's like you, you really feel like you're touching at some really, really fundamental uh, way that the universe is being made. When I was sitting in these biophysics talks or, or, or biology talks, and, and I knew very little about biology because I never studied it um, specifically, it, it, but but I, I, I just had this impression that there were some very fundamental things in biology that still hadn't been discovered. And of course, there's this uh, incredible mystery around what's, what is something, what's, what's a living system, what, what makes something alive. And, you know, you want to keep probing and understand where the, where the living part comes from. And so, yeah, so that's why I decided that after my PhD, I wanted to go into, um, I wanted to keep using the, the techniques I was, well, not the techniques, but I wanted to continue doing experiments. I really enjoyed that, but I wanted to move into something that was more uh, biology uh, relevant, biology related. I also, um, part of my choice at this point, so during my PhD, we were doing X-ray diffraction um, and we were using, um, we, were, we were doing the experiments for my thesis at a synchrotron. So it's like this huge uh, accelerator where as a, as a um, uh, almost as an afterthought, you get very strong X-ray beams coming out of the accelerator and you can use that for, for experiment. But so those experiments involved a lot of, um, a lot of other people. <laughs> you know, it, it, things had, had to work. So sometimes you would come and, and the machine was done because something was not working. So you had to leave and you'd come back a few months later. And, and I really missed the, the feeling I had during my undergrad of being in a lab and being in control of the experiments, being able to you know, yeah, decide and, and, and control all, every aspect of the experiment. And so, so that's why I chose to do biophysics, but to, to leave uh, X-ray scattering behind me and instead to uh, start working with microscopy and and uh, it, it turned out fluorescence microscopy because that's the uh, yeah that that's something you can have in one room and um, and then other part of my choice had nothing to do with science I you know I, I considered several labs and I asked around about uh, people I knew if they knew some good labs to do a postdoc but I also looked at the weather and the food <laughs> and so. I had to choose and I wanted to travel. I knew I wanted to go live, go abroad again. I, I really had enjoyed my experiences in the US um, from a touristic point of view. And so I yeah, I visited a, a lab in Amsterdam, which which where they, they were doing wonderful science, but the, the food in the cafeteria was horrible. And then I visited Israel and um, and the sun was shining and um the science was also incredible at the Weizmann Institute where, where I went. I, I was there for a week and, and I was really, um, I was struck by the how, how, how wonderful it was a place for science, but the food was amazing. <laughs> and I, I, uh, being the, I had no idea yet about politics and, and anything like this, like that was flying a, a thousand miles over my head. So what I saw was a fantastic place to do science. Uh, and and a, a, a fantastic place to also uh, explore the culture and and the, um, the 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 geography and the region and everything and and um, so um, yeah and it was a wonderful place I so there I went to work with uh, somebody called Michael Elbaum who was my supervisor who was a, a amazing I've I've had such amazing supervisor over the years 
um, and I discovered it was it was such a a nice time of discovery because I was I had basically changed topic completely. I was working on nuclear transport, as as you mentioned, um, so trying to understand how things how things of proteins are, and nucleic acid were were shuttling uh, in and out of the nucleus. Um, so I knew nothing about this. I had to learn everything, all about the biology, the cellular biology, taking care of cells. But I also had to learn everything about the techniques, the, the fluorescence microscopy, uh, fluorescence correlation spectroscopy that um, uh, that is the technique we still use to this day in my lab. And um, and so it was two years where I, I don't think I was very productive because um, you know it, I had to learn all these things, but. In the end, I think that's also why I love research is you're always learning. And this was like a really intense period of learning and it was a wonderful place to learn it. So there were a lot of graduate courses for graduate students that as a postdoc, I could also attend. Uh, and, and you know, some of the classes I took there uh, are still really stuck in my mind. Like the professors were amazing. Um, like I took a course about the, you know, the, the um, beginning of molecular biology and the discovery of, of the DNA structure and um, and protein um, and 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 you know it was wonderful. So <laughs> and uh, so after that, um, the, my last my last move to come to Canada was a little bit um, of a um, different types of choice. So my my partner at the time. Uh, was 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 Canadian and he wanted to go back to Canada to uh, to to finish his study. So I looked for a job there, thinking why not? <laughs> I've never been to Canada, um, and I I was looking around the, the Toronto area and I you know found this ad at McMaster website. They were looking for a biophysicist and I thought why not? I just apply and I um, I, I I wasn't very confident about my 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 chances I, I i knew that in france um getting a job often involved already knowing the people who were advertising for the job uh it might have changed now but this was 20 years ago like there was a lot of you know networking that needed to be done in order to get positions and so i just thought you know i'm just sending this application out of the blue nobody knows me there and but they interviewed me and they hired me <laughs> so um and i i so what I really liked about McMaster when I when I visited uh, is um, is that I, I felt that there was this there was the strong physics department with my primary department, but there's of course uh, amazing research that's being done on the life science, biological science, medical science side, and um, at this point in time, the, the biochemistry department in particular was trying to get some 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 link with uh, other departments like physics and chemistry and so my position is, is a joint position between these two departments and what I what I had come to realize when I was doing my postdoc is that what I wanted to do with uh, where I wanted my own research to go I wanted I didn't want it to be physics research I wanted it to be biophysics research something that was useful for for um that was meaningful to biology, meaning that I wanted to be able to ask questions and work with systems that were real biological system and asking questions about the biology of this system, as opposed to playing around with them as a physicist. And uh, 
I'm sure we'll talk about magnetotactic bacteria later. We're still playing around with virtual ecosystem, but I think um, we're also trying too hard to ask uh, to ask complex question about biological system. And, and again, so I, what I found about McMaster, sorry, I'm talking so much, but what I found about McMaster is that it was really a place where I thought I could do that. I, I, there was this, uh, this dual um, uh, expertise and will to work together in an interdisciplinary manner. And so, yeah, that's, that's what attracted me to Canada, where I'm st I still am. That was 20 years ago. So. That's amazing. No, uh, I... I also have moved around because of uh, a partner. Yeah. That's why I'm in Ottawa right now. Um, Are you in Ottawa? I didn't realize. Yeah. <laughs> I work in Ottawa. But um, what led you uh, to move on to the next question? What led you to develop a research group that combines two departments? You kind of spoke a little bit about wanting more biological applications, but uh what led you to have a research group that combines both the physics and astronomy and uh, mm -hmm. biochemistry and biomedicine kind of side? Yeah. So I, I, I feel that that's in my field, in, because it is, it, is, it is interdisciplinary by nature, I, I feel that it's important for me to collaborate with, with uh, biologists um, in, in order to do the research that I want to do. And so, um, yeah, when, when I arrived uh, in, in the, when, when I interviewed and, and talked with, with researchers in, in biochemistry, I felt that there were a lot of possibility for, for collaborations. And, and indeed, uh, for, 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 for a long time after that, I had a really close collaboration with a colleague in biochemistry, which I think, you know, I did, a lot of research I'm really proud of, and it would never have been possible if we didn't have this this working together. And and um, I think now I collaborate more with people who are in different university or even abroad. You know, it just like happened like this. But at the beginning, especially, I think it really was um, th that's that was the point for me is that I would be able to walk over somebody else's office and ask questions and be able to. Um, you know, have students that would be co-supervised so that they would really be trained uh, both in the aspect that I was knowledgeable about, that I felt comfortable about, that I was trained for, but also for the other side of the coin so that they could really do this type of, the type of research that would, that would meaning, like truth, 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 truthfully combine both aspects. Um, because I think, so one of the things we do in, in the lab um, is to use techniques that are quite involved in order to detect motions of, of proteins. And, and it takes time and effort to you know, go to the bottom of this and do it well. And so, um, and, I, and I think it's, it's then impossible. I don't have the time to equally do well just by myself, the, the part that has to do with the cell biology, for example. So yeah, so that, that's, to me, that was really an essential point is to be able to, um, I have a lab where I could both prepare samples and observe them in one place. That's the other thing I was very, I, I was very sure I wanted and, and be able to collaborate closely uh, with people in the life science. That's really interesting. I find um, the joining of two different fields of research. Your most cited research is about anomalous diffusion of tracer <laughs> proteins in solutions that imitate crowded cellular environments. What is anomalous diffusion and how is it caused? <laughs> 
Yes. Um, so, so anomalous diffusion. Um, so let me get a, just a little bit. Well, anomalous diffusion to, to the first to the first order is diffusion that's not normal. <laughs> And, uh, and so in order to understand this, we, we need to understand what's normal diffusion. And so normal diffusion is the diffusion such like Einstein described back in 1905 um, in his landmark paper. It's, it's a diffusion where you have a particle that takes a random walk in space. And, the, um, and, and one of the consequences of taking a, a random walk a truly random walk with um, with some with some restriction on the random walk. So, for example, it's a random walk where you're not allowed to take steps that are infinitely long, or to wait infinitely long amount of time before you take the next step. So, but under like under some reasonable assumption about the the walk, you know, the walk that you're taking, then you can. Uh, regardless of the exact nature of the random walk, you can derive some general property about, about diffusion. And one of these properties is that the, um, the squared, the mean squared displacement of the particle, so think of it as the, um, as the uh, amount of space that the particle is covering during this random walk is proportional to time. So if I, if I wait twice the time, I will cover twice the surface area. And that's that's kind of one of the tenets of diffusion, uh, normal diffusion, and how far the the, the diffusion goes is is um, uh, is is regulated by one parameter, which is called the diffusion coefficient. So we're more familiar with motion that are directed motion. So if you're just you know, driving on the road, your motion is defined by one thing and it's your velocity, as long as you're not crazily accelerating or, or stopping. But when you're diffusing, your diffusion is described by one thing and that's your diffusion coefficient, okay? Um, and so anomalous diffusion is when instead of your diffusion between def defined by a nice, constant diffusion coefficient, um, the diffusion coefficient that you measure depends at the, the, the length scale at which you measure the diffusion. So let me take an example. So to, to, to characterize diffusion, what you can do, what we do in the lab in some cases, you just make a movie of your protein with its fluorescent tag and you see it, um, and you see it just moving around randomly and you track it. And from the, the you know, from the trajectory, you can calculate the diffusion coefficient. So you could do this by tracking the particle for like 30 seconds or maybe three hours or maybe three days. And for a normal diffusion process, no matter the length of time you, you look at the protein or no matter you know, the, the, yeah, the resolution of your experiments, like all, it, you will always get the same diffusion coefficient. It has one diffusion coefficient. But for anomalous diffusion, what we see is that the, pro, the, the particle might be diffusing really fast on small time scale. So if you clock it for 30 seconds, it's, or let's say for a millisecond, it will go really fast. But if you look at one second, it seems to be slowing down. And if you look, it, and it slows down and slows down and slows down. And so that's what's called anomalous diffusion. Oh, that's one type of anomalous diffusion. And that's the type that we 
um, with increasing cells and also um, in media like polymer solutions. And the reason why you get this behavior is that, so imagine um, um, solution, imagine a cell that has this, you know, inside the cell you'd have, for example, um, all this cytoskeleton, all these filaments that form the cytoskeleton. And you can see that if you, if you put a protein in this environment um, you, and you start looking at it, it might be in a kind of like a cavity, like in between filaments, and it will be going different really fast, but then it's kind of trapped in this cavity and it takes some time before it escapes the next cavity and the next one. And so if you look on a larger scale, it, it you know its motion is slowed down and so that's that's the yeah that's that's the 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 root of anomalous diffusion is that you un encounter obstacles basically so you you diffusing in a complex media that's not just a simple fluid and you will have this uh, hierarchy of architectures that uh, you know slows down the diffusion on on several levels so another example is um, we, we also do exper experiments in fly embryos, for example, and there uh, you have, um, you know, beyond what's going on in a single cell or a single nuclear environment, you would have what goes on over several so several cells. And, so, and then you might be slowed down by other things like lipid membranes and things like this. So yeah, that's, uh, that's how you would get anomalous diffusion in biological systems. It's very interesting stuff. Uh, when I was reading the report, I, I mean, I've read about anomalous diffusion before uh, because I was in medical biophysics for the first two years. But uh, I, when reading more about it, I realized that I didn't fully understand it initially. So that's that's nice. But uh, how has the research on anomalous diffusion further developed since the paper you did in two thousand and five? Right. So in 2005, we um, we we measured it. Uh, we 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 detect. We used fluorescence collection spectroscopy. Um, so a method which is not quite particle tracking, but but uh, it, anyway, it it still kind of look at very small scale what's going on at the small scale. So um, and we and we we looked at diffusion of protein and tracers in. Um, in crowded solutions. So not quite in the cell, but in a test tube where we had a very high concentration of other proteins or, or other molecules. And we weren't really expecting to see uh, anomalous diffusion there because, um, because theory didn't predict we should see anomalous diffusion, but we did see anomalous diffusion. And so I think that's why this paper was, um, uh, it 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 was like a landmark paper in some ways, only for me for me, uh, because because it was an an unexpected an, an result. But to me, it was always the first step in order to be able to interpret measurements in cells, because the cell is like the perfect example of something that's super crowded. Like you in the, the amount of stuff that's in a cell is uh, it's basically at the limit of saturation. So there's um, there's so much proteins and other molecules in cell, you, you couldn't put more of them in there or the set, you know, you would, you would, it would start coming out of solution. So it's, it's, there's something about biological system and, and it changes a little bit. Some cells are a little bit more crowded than other, but certainly um, the cell is operating under absolutely uh, 
packed credit condition. And so um, there's a lot of inter interesting consequence of that because how do you, you know, how does a protein fold in a crowded environment as opposed to non crowded environment and things like this. So, um, and actually that's what inspired me to do this first experiment is like, oh, but what about motion? Like, how do you move when there's, you know, so much things around you? Um, and and uh, so we were just expecting things to get slower, right? Like you put more stuff, the more crowded becomes more viscous, things should, should be smaller, the diffusion coefficient should go down. But we also saw sign in that first experiment that um, the diffusion coefficient was going down, but also there was some distortion in the data that was not consistent with normal diffusion. And that's why we, we said always oh, seeing anomalous diffusion. But it was still, so, so there are two things that, um, that ex that experiment didn't answer. So the first one is kind of technical is that we, we were measuring things at one scale, one, one time scale. So we saw sign that things were not quite normal, but we didn't see that, like we, our experiments at the time didn't prove that this, uh, there was a, a change of diffusion coefficient with length scale. So that's something we've done since. Um, we've we've like modified our experiments so we could uh, measure at different length scales. And we saw again in, in a polymer solution, um, we saw that we, 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 we could see this change in diffusion coefficient. So that was a nice validation that of the first thing we'd seen was real. Uh, but we also, of course, know what we're really trying to do, what we've been trying to do since then, I know it's been 15 years, but um, is, is to apply this to what we measure in cells. So in cells, things are more noisy. It's it's harder to um, it's harder to see things at, as clearly. And in cells, there's always a lot of alternative explanations to what you see. So, for example, um, one of the system that has, has been our favorite system uh, in the past uh, in the past five ten years is to look at the diffusion of um, transcription factor in the nucleus of cells, and the system we're using is a is a, a fly embryo um, for for reasons that maybe I, I, we don't need to get into, but. Um, so we 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 have some we have we've taken uh, over the years uh, some repeated and uh, and I think getting higher and higher quality measurements of the diffusion of several transcription factors in the in the nuclei of the fly embryo, and and so in the cell it's difficult to play the trick we played in solution where we change the scale of the of the visualization because. In, in the nucleus has a certain size and we can't, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of room to play with. So we are limited to this single scale measurements that we were doing from the beginning. And is these measurements, we do see signs that there some weird things are, are happening. But so when, when you're talking about a transcription factor in a nucleus, what is, what is it that's weird? So is it weird because it's very crowded? So yes, it's very crowded. There is one meter of DNA packed in this, uh, you know, five micron radius nucleus. That's mind boggling. So for sure your protein is gonna be slowed down. And in fact, what's, what's in fact very fascinating is that the diffusion that we see is much faster than what you would expect from the crowding that you have. So, you know, if we crowd the, crowd the solution with, um, with a polymer, 
at, at the concentration that the DNA is at in the nucleus, we get the, the diffusion is slowed down by uh, an order of magnitude to 10 times slower. In the, the nucleus, the protein is barely two times slower. So there's some, like there's somehow the cell has packaged the DNA in a way that makes it quite efficient for the transcription factor to move around. But we also see these tails in our curve that indicate that we're not talking about simple diffu diffusion. So is it anomalous diffusion in the sense that we, we discussed before, or is it that in the case of a transcription factor, of course, the role of that protein is to, at some point, attach to DNA and act on the transcription or you know, trigger the transcription or, the, um, or block the transcription of, of some genes. So you, you, of course, expect it's going to have some interaction with the DNA. And so it becomes really hard to, to take apart. Uh, and and in, some, in some way, it becomes also a matter of semantic um, you know, is it like the diffusion is, do you call anomalous diffusion a diffusion where your protein, for example, diffuse 90% of the time, but then attached to the DNA 10% of the time. So that slows it down in a weird way. Uh, and, and for sure, if you look at the small scale diffusion, it's fast because it's just diffusing. But if you look at longer time scale, you will have time to attach to the DNA several times and it will be slowed down more than uh, just its initial diffusion. So, um, so that's the question we have in the cell. So when we get to the cell, yes, we see weird diffusion, but then the weird diffusion becomes associated, we hope, with actual biological processes. And then that's what starts interesting us. So um, for example, in, in this study that we're doing on fly embryo, um, we are looking at and I say we, but this is really a graduate student who's doing all the work in that case. So my graduate student, Lili Zhang, Lili Zhang is uh, looking at two different types of transcription factor. One is a repressor, one is a, an activator. And we're asking the question where is, you know, would the motion of these two proteins be very different since they have such different function in the nucleus? And surprisingly, we found that their motion is very similar. So there must be uh, the, the, yeah, the, the, the mechanism by which they act on, on, gene, um, uh, on, on gene transcription must be very similar, although they have this very opposite function. So that's, yeah, that's, um, that's kind of where this research has, has been leading since 2005, way slower than I would like, but still <laughs> trudging along. It's developing pretty fast. Uh, it gets way more complicated when you when you try to research it like from the beginning like a timeline it starts getting complicated very fast so yes. um as an undergraduate student but i don't know um but uh so what i'm understanding is you the research on anomalous diffusion at the beginning kind of has led into the research on um like measuring protein concentration in the presence of no noise and photo bleaching uh, due to uh, the autofluorescence, I believe. Is that what you said in one of the recent studies? Yes. Yeah, and then also the like the in vivo applications and the distinguishing between different diffusion processes, like the simple diffusion, continuous time random walk diffusion, stuff like that. Um, so on that kind of note, uh, can you kind of describe more of the role of... Uh, the fluorescence correlation spectroscopy in that research? 
yes, for sure. For instance, correlation spectroscopy is great, and um, I'm always happy to talk about it. So, um, so, so for instance, correlation spectroscopy, I think is is it's 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 a fluorescence technique that's really adapted to uh, looking at uh, motion of fluorescent molecules in cells in particular. So um, I think in general, light microscopy is great because you can have a live cells under your microscope and not, you know, you're being gentle to it. Fluorescence is great because you can look at specific proteins uh, instead of you know, amongst this all crowded environment. So you can be very specific about what you're looking at. And when we're talking about motion, so the, the simplest idea to look at the motion of, of, a, of, a, of a molecule would be to say, well, I'm going to make a movie and I'm going to, you know, see where this protein is going. But the issue is that, is that, um, so looking at a single protein, which, which has its little fluorescent tag, which is another, another protein, which is fluorescence that you've attached to it uh, using a genetic modifications, um, it's not very bright. So it's, 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 it, 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 you know, it, it, um, um, it emits photons, but not so many of them. And so in order to be able to see and localize this protein, you need to take an image with a certain uh, for a certain length of time, like you, you and so if you're making a movie, uh, you can't make a movie with a, a frame rate which is uh, fast enough to follow the motion of most proteins. So, yeah, so so it, it's due both to the fact that um, you know camera there's limitation with the cameras that exist. Um, it, because it needs to be both really sensitive and really fast. And even if you could make a, a camera that was fast enough, it, if your exposure time for a single frame is too short, you, you wouldn't get enough photon to localize the protein. So there's an issue here uh, with, with this simple um, single particle tracking idea. So it works, single particle tracking works really well when you have proteins in membranes, because in membranes, proteins are slower, so you have the time to, to look at them. But when we're talking about something like a transcription factor, which is not attached to a membrane and is really fast, then, then single particle tracking has, has really severe limitations. And so that's where fluorescence correlation spectroscopy comes in. So Fluorescence correlation spectroscopy would be um, so. If I if I make an analogy, so imagine you're a policeman and you're trying to track people's car on the highway because they're driving too fast. So your first um, your first one possibility would be for you to drive after them and and follow them, and that's going to be the movie. So it's it's it's. It works like you're tracking the the, the, the car, but it, but it you need to be really fast, and sometimes you can't. And another uh, idea would be that you stop on the highway at the side of the highway, and you wait for cars to come by you, uh, and you just clock when they come in your, to your field of view and when they leave that field of view. And if you know that your field of view is 50 meter long and you know the time that the the car has taken to cover this 50 meter you can tell exactly what the speed of that car was so that's what we do with fluorescence correlation spectroscopy we park our observation volume which is very small so it's like 
half a micron in it's like a little ball half a micron in radius um, and we we just look at what comes through this little observation volume and so as time goes by protein with their tag diffuse through they come in they come out and each time they come in and out we see this little spike in our signal and we can measure the, the length of this spike and um and here, because we're not trying to really localize the protein, we can do this with like we we need less photons uh, to to just we just need to know the protein is there somewhere in our volume, and this allows us to be really 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 fast. And so we can measure uh, extremely fast motions uh, of of proteins using this technique at the cost of not knowing actually what they are doing, <laughs> and that's where you know. Or everything I was saying about weirdness in the data is like it's we can't we 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 can't exactly pinpoint maybe uh, if things were not as we 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 expected. Um, well, let's say we it's it's we have to we have to interpret what we're seeing because so for example we we um, the signal you would get for proteins that would just be have a directed motion. Uh, and would, like a car would be speeding through your detection volume would be quite different from the, the type of signal you would get from a protein that's diffusing randomly. And so we know how to distinguish these two signals. But sometimes we get something that's in between. And then what do you do? So what's happened? So, you know, maybe the protein has uh, attached to the DNA and then slid along the DNA for a little while. Or maybe it was carried out by a molecular motor or maybe something else happened. Maybe it, Maybe it, it it linked to other it it bound to it bound to other proteins and it was slower for a while because it was part of a larger complex. Um, so yes, so there is a lot of um, uh, exciting possibilities when we when we get this signal. But but the, the big advantage of it is that you you can catch really fast motions. Yeah. Um, in further development of FCS, what are some other um, like if we can go into more detail about the different in vivo applications of FCS? I know you mentioned some of them like right before this question, but if you could go into a little bit more um, detail about the different in vivo applications. You mean in, 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 our, um, in, our, in, our, in our lab in particular? Or... Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so that brings me back as to why we're using the fly because to the first, uh, the, the first, like the, the, the first application that that we had for it um, was to try and understand um, questions, understand questions that were related to morphogen gradient formation. So um, a morphogen is a molecule which has an uneven distribution in an embryo or in a growing tissue. And it's basically used by the by the embryo as a postal code as a letter in a postal code. So in the fly embryo, the morphogen we study is called bicoid, and it, it's very concentrated at one end of the embryo, and its concentration decays regularly uh, towards the tail of the embryo. And so if you are a cell inside the embryo, you're basically reading that concentration, and it gives you your position along this axis, right? So it's like giving position along the x-axis. And then you have, you have other morph morphogen that gives you position on different other axes, you also have morphogens that give you the time. And so the cell um, is then able to you know, read all these signals and know exactly where it is in the embryo, uh, how far along development, uh, the development program it is, 
And it, that in response to that, it's going to express different sets of genes uh, and, and eventually it's going to differentiate maybe into different types of cells. So the, the question of the, of the morphogen, there was when we started, um, you know, when, when my lab started working, when I started my group, there was this question in the field about how does the morphogen gradient is formed. So for Bicoid, the, the protein is being expressed at the head of the embryo, like there's some messenger RNA that's deposited by the mother. Um, when, when, the, when the embryo is laid, the messenger RNA is being stuck at the head of the embryo. And so the, the expression of the protein is only happening at the towards the, I shouldn't call it the head, it's the anterior pole. There's no head yet. It's the anterior pole of the embryo. And so um, the protein is being, if you want, there's a source of the protein. It's like there's a, a tap and it's, it's producing the protein in that one point. And you could see that if you keep the tap on continuously, um, the protein is going to spread out to the embryo, but you might always have more protein uh, where the tap is. Uh, if you close the tap, eventually you would expect it to equilibrate, but the tap is kept on. And so there was, there was some, some controversy uh, at the time about um, whether this, this process was, was done by diffusion, with the protein just diffusing through the embryo, or is it in fact some active process which take the protein and brings it so that you can, because you get like this really nice, smooth exponential concentration gradient. And it's really important that this gradient is right because if it's a little bit, you know, uh, if the exponential is a bit shorter or longer, the head of the, that fly is going to be a little bit bigger or smaller and you can have some variation, but you don't want too much variation. So. Yeah, and it, it, so it, it so and there was a controversy because there's some measurement that were done by another group in the states where, where they showed that they they'd made a measurement with another method and they they said oh the diffusion is way too slow for this to be formed by diffusion it has to be some other type of methods and um, but the method they employed had the same um, so. It, it had the same limitation as as the single particle tracking. It actually couldn't catch fast motion. And when when we saw that, we thought, okay, now this, you know, like that, that there's something here that needs to be done better. And FCS is the technique to do that because we can we can really catch the, the how fast this protein might be. And so, uh, yeah, and and that was that was the, the like the first important experiment I would say we did we did with FCS uh, in vivo uh, is to is to measure the diffusion coefficient of that morphogen bicoid and the, the answer was beautiful because the diffusion coefficient we measured it was just exactly right to explain the formation of that concentration gradient um, and as a and it was also very satisfying because the the fact that this gradient was being formed by diffusion, it goes back to ideas that had been uh, proposed by Francis Crick, uh, you know, like um, 14 or 50 years ago, uh, that those gradients were formed by diffusion. Uh, also come back to idea, um, about, you know, from Turing about uh, diffusion, um, re reaction diffusion pattern and the, the creation of patterns in biological system. Uh, and, and, the, and the importance that diffusion had to play was certainly playing in those processes. And so what our experiment proved uh, is that, yes, it was diffusion that was creating those gradients. And um, 
yeah, and that was that was one application of uh, FCS, and yeah, and other groups actually used FCS to look at different morphogens and also show that diffusion was involved in the formation of different types of morphogen gradients. So I think it's it was not just our group that you know used that technique for that application. It was really well suited to look at the yes at this particular type of um, uh, of, of system of biological process. A little bit more about FCS. I know that you also explored uh, the difference between model independent and model dependent FCS data analysis. Uh, oh. so could you kind of go into the benefits and the drawbacks of each? Well, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You want to get technical? Sure. <laughs> Uh, so, so yes, yeah, so, so, so I think, I think one limitation of FCS is that, as I, as I, I think I, I tried to mention earlier, um, is that we get a signal that's ambiguous in the sense that um, the signal that we get sometimes it could it could be explained by different processes. So, for example. Um, Right now, one of the, so I was mentioning the transcription factor inside the cell nuclei, and we see that there is a, a, a fraction of the, the transcription factor that has slowed down. And there are several explanations that are possible for that. Um, and one explanation is that, um, as, I, as I mentioned, the, the transcription factor might attach to the DNA uh, for certain lengths of time and, and search for its target along the DNA. And another explanation, which um, we're quite excited about because it it relates to some new discovery in cell biology, is that it might be it might become part of what's called a nuclear condensate. So that's a little um, phase-separated droplet where um, a certain protein would just like make their own uh, their their own organelles by themselves by phase-separating. Uh, into yeah, a droplet where certain proteins would be very concentrated and that this unit might be um, responsible for the, the, for the control of transcription. So, you know, we have always this picture from biology textbook of uh, when a certain process happened that you have this kind of Lego assembly of the different proteins that are involved in the process. And I think we're shifting slowly to a different paradigm where maybe this place where things happen instead of being this nicely um, structured assembly is a little bit of a, a liquid type uh, uh, environment where things are moving around still and going back to the idea of motion. Anyway, so back to your question, in, in this case for our transcription factor, we think that they might be part of this liquid assembly for a while and then come out and that's, that's what we see in our data. But we can't from the strictly from the FCS signal, so from these little spikes in the data, we can't tell the difference. So, so the, the model dependent analysis then is to say, okay, well, suppose that um, my protein is actually attaching to DNA transiently, um, then I would be able to describe its motion by one diffusion coefficient when it's not attached, uh, a probability to attach to the DNA, then a velocity along the DNA and then a probability to detach. So that's, you know, and, and, and I take those four coefficients and that's what, about, that's what my data would look like. And yes, it looks like the data I took. So it doesn't prove that's what it's happening. It proved that the data is consistent with that particular model. 
but I can make another model where instead it's going into these droplets and it's, uh, it's um, you know, and it will, it fits our data in this case, for example, equally well. So we're left with, you know, what's going on. So, um, so I think when, when we do biology, we, we need to, to, we want to make these models and then we want to use, um, we want to use additional observations that are not FCS in order to validate or invalidate which one is correct. But there's another way to approach this is to say, okay, what if I try to not make any assumption about what's going on and I just work from the data that I have? And so um, what can I still say something about the data about what's going on? Where I'm, I'm never going, maybe I won't be able to say, you know, to be as precise, but at least I know that I'm right because I haven't made any assumptions. And that's the idea of model independent uh, analysis. And in this case, um, so um, so what we've been trying to, so, so the way we analyze the data is we get this signal, which has this little fluctuation. And, um, and then we, in order to extract information from the fluctuation, we, we do a mathematical operation that's called uh, um, correlation. So we take an autocorrelation function of the data and we get another curve. And so we, we're just trying, we've been trying to extract information from this curve uh, by making as little assumption as possible. And one of the information that we can get out of this without making assumption is that we can actually measure, so we can, we can extract a, a, a diffusion coefficient as a function of time. As, as opposed to a single number. So, and this gets, gets us back to the idea of anomalous diffusion that a, a normal diffusion should just be one diffusion coefficient. And then I would get one type of correlation function. And if I, if I you know, do this model free analysis, I kind of do some more mathematical operation on this and I get uh, a diffusion coefficient as a function of time and it's always the same. And this tells me that, oh yes, I, I really have simple diffusion. But in the case where we have some more complex uh, activity going on, then we, we see that the diffusion coefficient changes. It's faster, it's faster at short, short time scale and then it becomes slower. And so we don't know why it becomes slower. slower. It could be that over time, things get trapped on the DNA or in this condensate. But, but we, we've already said something, we've characterized how much slower it was getting and so on and so forth. So that's the idea of model-free um, analysis of the data. That's super interesting. Um, I remember going through a lot of the papers and like, it was a little hard for me because I'm, I'm more of a biologist, um, but like it took me a couple of read-throughs to really understand. To shake things up a little bit, um, your mo more recent research projects explore the functions of magno magnetotactic bacteria. Could you briefly explain what magnetotactic bacteria are and how they can be used for potential agents for practical applications, such as targeted drug delivery? Yeah, magnetotactic bacteria are, are fantastic. So they are, they are, they are, they are, um, they are the bacteria, obviously, and they turn out, and, and it's not just one type. So it, it, it turns out that there's a lot of different types of magnetic bacteria and they are very abundant. So um, for example, um, 
I know that one of my colleagues in chemistry, uh, Dr. Adam Hitchcock, who is also interested in them, uh, has successfully um, fished them out of Coots Paradise, <laughs> the Royal Botanical Garden. Um, and so if you if you look at one specific uh, height in, in body of water, which is the height where the oxygen concentration has decreased just to the right level, you will almost always find magnetotactic bacteria. So they are called magnetotactic because they, um, they synthesize little magnetotactic particles that they align uh, along their, uh, that are inside their body and that are aligned along one axis of their body. And they use these magnetic um, particles to align with magnetic field. And so in Canada, for example, the magnetic field is pointing, uh, is pointing north, but it's also pointing downwards. And so what these bacteria use the magnetic field for is to swim up and down because they are, they are too light to feel the effect of gravity in water so that you know gravity doesn't affect them. So they don't know what's up and what's down. But with the magnetic field, they use the magnetic field to go up and down and, and, and to find the right uh, oxygen concentration for, for their living condition. So they are, they are interesting for really a, a great number of reasons. So let me, so first they're interesting because they are the simplest type of organism we know that use magnetic field for navigation. So we know that some insects, birds use it. We don't know how, like this is still very mysterious, but with those bacteria, we get a chance to really understand what's going on because they are quite simple. Uh, they are super interesting because, you know, there's the question of how do you, how does such, so how does something as simple as a bacteria manage to synthesize crystals of magnetites? So magnetic crystals that are so perfect, like they're, they're beautiful. They are, uh, yeah, they're all this, almost the same size. They are the exact right size. Like if, you know, there are a lot of nice physics in there as well about this magnetic crystal. So, but it's, it's, it's a real biological question. How do you, how do you do that with proteins? And um, then there are, as you, as you mentioned, there are some applications that we can think of for those uh, this bacteria. Um, I'm not sure about targeted drug delivery, but for example, one application that uh, uh, I think is, is very exciting is if we understand how, how, the, how these bacteria are making magnetic crystal and they do it with a, a restricted number of genes, um, we know exactly which genes. And so once we understand how these genes work together to make those crystals, we could think of inserting those genes in different types of cells. For example, you could, uh, you could, you could put those genes into a cancer cells and then you could put that cancer cell in a mice and then you could use MRI to follow exactly the, pro 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 um, the um, progression of the disease. So it, it would be, it, you know, it could be used as a way um, to, um, uh, yes, to, to really observe things. It, it can also be used as a way to treat because this magnetic particle, you can uh, heat them up. Um, and so you could use it as a way to destroy some, some types of cell if you can target them, but this is quite far away. They also very, but they're also very interesting from a um, geological point of view, because in rocks, you find a lot of those magnetic particles uh, because they are left over, you know, like when the cell dies, the magnetic particles stay. And so they're, they're also important in geology and they have been, um, you know, 
and, and they are they are a proof often they are taken as a proof that there was living system uh, at that position because the the cell makes the, the way the cell make those particles they they are quite different from particles that are, are made by non-living systems and so they're often uh, taken as yeah as the proof that something living was there and and so for example one of the way that possibly um it might be possible to prove that you know there was life somewhere else than Earth. Would be if we could find a rock on Mars, let's say, that had this type of particle. It could be the proof that there was some biological system there that um, synthesized those particles. So, yeah, they, they are they are quite interesting. They are very interesting. Also, you mentioned Adam Hitchcock. Uh, he was the reason why I passed chemistry in first year. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, he was the, the sole reason why I passed chemistry. Um, but yeah, so the, the great guy to work with as well. Um, so we wanted to kind of wrap things up a little bit and ask you about the gaps in the field of biophysics and things that you feel need to be further explored when it comes to cellular dynamics in general? Yeah, I, well. A loaded question. <laughs> no, um, it's a really good question. Um, I think there's still quite a lot to, that we need to figure out. I think we still, we still don't quite understand how things move around in the cell, to be honest. Like we, we we start we have some we have some clues like we know they diffuse and we we know that there's also some directed motion that is affected by molecular motors, um, but all like I, I'm biased because that's a question that fascinates me. But all this question of how do you, how do how do how do proteins know where they need to go? Um, it still has a little bit of aspect of magic to it that things go, are happening really, really fast in the cell, and they are happening really fast. But but they are they are also very specific. So and 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 there is so much crowding, right? So I, I guess this question that interested me twenty years ago, I, I don't think we have found um, we have found an answer to it. No, we have some numbers. We see oh, this is how fast they are going. I'm not, still not sure how how they get there. Um, and and yeah, and I think the I think we but I think we we are like we're circling around this problem, like the field is circling around this problem, and I think we are approaching solution and and the fact that I think I mentioned at the very beginning that from what we see, it really looks like the cell is organized in a in a way that's really clever in order for things to move around really fast. And, and I think it's organized at a level that we cannot see very easily by the method that we've been using so far. And so I think that this, this progressive understanding in the last few years that there was actually these uh, different phases in inside the cell is very exciting because I think it might maybe um, bring some answers to those questions as because it would... Yeah, I mean that you have we have different compartments in the cells that we didn't know before, before didn't know existed before, and that changes everything in terms of uh, the dynamic of things and how they move around. But but also yes, the um, I think the interplay between this active motion and passive motion, so the directed motion and the diffusion, I don't think we understand that very well yet. 
um, and whether some proteins might use both because we, we've we've studied them we've been studying them uh, like the, in general they've been studied uh, separately. Um, yes, so I think that's that's question that remains to be answered. That we have. Oh, and yeah, and I forget. There's something else that I think is exciting um, about diffusion, and it's related to this active motion, and somehow it's related to this magnetic bacteria uh, in, in a roundabout way. But so an idea that I think um, is fascinating is the idea of biological noise and the fact that um, that the cell might it might be crowded but it might also be at a higher temperature so to speak than a, a simple solution in the sense that because of all the activity that's being um that that exists inside the cell because of all those molecular motors that use chemical energy in order to produce mechanical uh, work there's actually some kind of stirring and agitation all the time inside the cell and and this is another thing that i think is really we, we, we know it exists. There's been some publication about it. I think it, it's the effect of that is really understudied. And we don't really understand if that actually, what influences it, it has on the motion of, of proteins. So yeah, I think that's another, another path where we're gonna see some change in the future. Um, I think a lot of the students are waiting for this million dollar question. Um, well, what advice would you have for undergraduates who are perhaps interested in pursuing a research position at the Molecular Biophysics Group? And what are the roles of the undergraduates in your research at the Molecular Biophysics Group? Mm -hmm. um, so maybe the second, the second part is easier to answer right away. So we, um, it, it's, it's a real pleasure to work with un undergraduates and, and we often have several undergraduate working in the lab at any moment in time. I think at the moment um, we have uh, we have four, for example. And so um, I think it, it, it's it's a, it's a, it's yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of room for this. Like I think it's it's um, in undergraduate, they all each bring a different perspective. They each bring a different skill set. I'm I'm so amazed um about the undergrad in canada because I, I i was an undergrad in france where the the um uh our education is very formal and even if we have labs like it's it's not at all developed it doesn't really develop your Im imagination and initiative and i think the undergrad i've worked through the years at mcmaster and and uh, are, uh, like they 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 are so so independent and and so uh, yeah they have so much imagination. So I think a lot of our work is done by undergraduate. We always almost always have more undergraduate than graduates in the lab. And so for example, the magnetotactic bacteria project has been a project that been has been largely driven by undergraduates. The first paper we published about it was it was the work of several undergrads. Um, because it's a really nice simple system uh, so so we will yeah it's it's uh, a lot of our research rely on undergrads uh, of course it also relies on graduate students because being able to work over several years on the same thing is uh, is and keeping memory of, of how doing things is precious but yes we also have undergrads who work over several years in, you know, like several summers or do projects as well during the school year. And that also has been very uh, fruitful um, in many cases. So 
um, yeah, so I really encourage, like I, 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 I love having undergraduate in the lab. Um, we always have more demand for research than I can accept. So it, it, it's also hard to choose. Um, one thing maybe that's specific to our lab is that I've, I'm always trying to have undergraduate coming from different uh, programs. So, um, you know, and so there's always trying to have a mix of students who come from more physics program, but also more uh, a biochemistry or life science program. Um, so that's also, there's this interaction between students that I think it's really useful for them to see what are the different skills that they bring to the table, which are um, very different, but it's also been really striking to me. You know, if I get an undergraduate who is from biochemistry, I will tend to assign them first a project that has to do with biochemistry, but some of them are learning the physics aspect of it so fast and vice versa. And it's also, you know, been really nice to be able to expose students to this interdisciplinarity. So hopefully our lab yeah, is, is a little laboratory for that as well. Um, and for advice, um, so do you mean advice specifically for undergraduate who, who would work, want to work in the lab? Um, yeah, yeah. And okay, let me add one thing about the skill. I think one skill that's really important, it's been, that has become a lot more important over the year, is being able to uh, do some programming and, and work with computers and data analysis. Um, and it wasn't always like this, but I have seen this, you know, come in. Uh, um, and so if, if I had one advice, like one technical advice in, in, is to pick up, try and pick up some courses where you learn some, some programming and data analysis skill. But, but in order of how I choose, I would say that very often for me, it's, it's, a, um, it's based on the interaction I, I would have with the students when I speak with them. Uh, because I think a lot of you come, you have so much skills, like you know, it's like the, the, the on paper, there's, there's a, a, a um, we, we receive CV that are, that are very good, like too much, very good CV, let's say, but what has always been important to me, yes, is this contact because, and, and I've, I've seen this myself working with different supervisor. I noticed that, um, I, I loved all my supervisor, but I worked better with some, some of them. And I think it depends on their supervision style and whether this, you know, there's something that passes like between the supervisor and the student. I think that's extremely important. And so when I, I when I select students, I I, I, I rely on this quite a, quite a bit to see whether I think this would be a good working relationship. And um, yes, so... That's, yeah, speaking of working relationships, this is an impromptu question because I'm, I'm curious now. Uh, and we never ask professors this, but I feel like this is one of the most important things now that we've done a few interviews. What kind of environment do you foster in your lab? Uh, like what, what kind of, you said you wanted an interdisciplinary team of students, especially with your undergrads, mm -hmm. but what's the environment like in your lab? Um, so interdisciplinary. So certainly I also like to have gender balance in the lab. And, and I think being a, a female professor, it's been easier for me maybe to attract female students in the lab that, 
than for some of my colleagues. So it's it's always been, I think it's been it's been like this. Um, I think I I like to foster independence in my students and but also being rigorous. So trying to um, you know be logical in in how we approach the design of project and the analysis of the data. I think that's something that's really important for all sciences. And and so yeah, that's that's another thing. Um, I hope I, I I also foster an environment where students feel at ease, where they feel you know they can work at the the hours that they want, and that they can always approach me with any question that they have. It's it's always hard to know if you have achieved this goal, but I I and and I think it always works better with some students than others. You know, like we, we, we have an idea, we try to have a certain atmosphere in the lab and and uh, yeah, and, and sometimes it takes and sometimes less so, but yeah, that's what I would hope is that, um, well, I want my students to gain skills, but I also want them to work in an environment that they feel is supportive and, you know, and, and that they, Hopefully, they know that I will always try to be helpful, not only with their research project, but also with their future career, writing letters of recommendation and, uh, you know, advising them. And, 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 yeah, and it's been my pleasure to, you know, one of my greatest pleasure is to receive news from students who have moved on. And some graduate students have done some really amazing things, leaving the lab, and some of them are professors. And, uh, and so hearing from those, students who went through the lab as undergraduates is is something that I really cherish and um, yeah so if any of my students hear this <laughs> podcast and I'm sorry because I never have the time to write myself I'm very bad with this but please uh, let me know where you are and what you're doing it sounds like you have achieved that exact environment like the supportive environment and everything uh, especially in the way that you answered our questions today. I mean, I assume that people you work with all the time, you answer their questions like perfectly. So I try. <laughs> I wish that we could keep listening about your research um, because it's been so fascinating. And so, as someone who hasn't really gone into physics all that much, it's been like a venture for me and I've, I've enjoyed myself. Um, but unfortunately, we have to like end this podcast. But thank you so much, Dr. Fredman, for all of your time. We really appreciate your insight on different types of diffusion, applications of FCS, magnetotactic bacteria, and the role of undergrads in your life. It has been such a pleasure talking with you and learning so much about your research. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It was very, very nice talking to you as well. Thanks for listening to me for so long. <laughs>